Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Today starts a six-week series and a sermon in particular that I preach every single year. And I will do this in perpetuity until Jesus comes back or until you get another preacher. I'm just saying. Because I can only be a part of a church that is about this. I will only lead a church that has this at its heart. This vision target. We will continue to build our reputation as the Love the Ville Church through our social concern. We will ensure that everyone knows of us, that no one loves the poor, no one loves the marginalized in the city like Northeast. Those people are everywhere. That's what we're after. Now, Jeremiah chapter 29. If you have your Bibles, you can turn, turn there. Jeremiah 29. Uh, we're going to read from this passage. In Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, what you'll find is you'll find the people of Israel about 600 years before Jesus on the verge of extinction. This is perhaps their lowest point since Egyptian slavery. Their villages have been pillaged. Their city has been sacked. The temple of God lay in a pile of smoldering rubble. And their brightest and most powerful leaders have been taken as political prisoners by the warlord, Nebuchadnezzar. And for the first time in a long time, the people of Israel are beginning to wonder, is this the end of us? Now, if you know anything about the Israelite people and their history, though, you know that they are a resilient group. So when the Babylonian army uh, took their leaders captive, uh, these leaders resisted. They would not move into Babylon. They felt like that would be surrendering, admitting defeat. And they did not want to have to integrate into a pagan city that clearly had a different set of morals and standards than they did. They'd rather die. But in this critical moment, through the prophet Jeremiah, God sends a letter to these leaders. This is the same prophet, by the way, that for decades had been telling them, this is going down, and they just didn't listen, but they listened this time. Because in this letter, God reveals a secret counter strategy to undermine and outlast the Babylonians from within. Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 1. Uh, this is what the word of the Lord says. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Jump down to verse 3, verse 4. This is what Jeremiah's letter said. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies the God of Israel says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. You ready? Here's the strategy. Build homes and plan to stay 
plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity. The what? The peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. The word of the Lord. Now, this is a f- fascinating. This whole thing is a fascinating strategy because up until this point, the people of Israel had had a totally different strategy. They basically were to be a holy, set apart people that built their civilization around the temple and shone a bright light out to the nations that would draw the nations in, right? But all of a sudden, God has a, a different strategy. They find themselves in exile. It's almost as if God is setting up a new covenant with them, which he does two chapters later in Jeremiah 31. And in this new covenant, now that they have broken the first and find themselves in exile, God says, build homes, plan to stay, eat their food, marry and multiply among them and work for the peace and prosperity, the peace and prosperity of the city. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus, and even more so, the authors of the New Testament after him, Paul, Peter, they pick up this idea of a people in exile and they apply it to the church. They say, we are foreigners, we're aliens, we're temporary residents in a land that is not our home, but we are still to work for the peace and prosperity, to love thy enemy, to care and love neighbor. This is our call. Now, look back in your Bibles to verse seven. I actually want you to circle the words peace and prosperity, or maybe in your translation, it says the welfare, work for the welfare of the city. Depends on what translation you're reading. Because we're gonna build off of the, this whole series is built on it. We're gonna build off the Hebrew word underneath this for the rest of our time. It's the Hebrew word shalom, shalom. You ever heard shalom before? Yeah. You probably have. It's a very important word. It's in the Old Testament like 250-ish times. Sometimes it's used as a greeting, like shalom to your home kind of thing. And uh, other times, it's uh, actually most often, it's used to talk about peace. This idea of peace and prosperity. But it's a special kind of peace. You know, a lot of us think of peace as the absence of tension. But that's not the sort of peace that's described here in the scripture. It's not the absence of tension. It's the presence of something that actually brings peace among the people. It's wholeness, health, and harmony on every level of society. Shalom is is wholeness in homes, in workplaces, in the government, in schools, and among neighborhoods. It's Eden, if you will. It's heaven. It's God's kingdom coming and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. It's that deep longing in every human heart that things aren't the way they should be. You ever feel that way? Like my family's just not the way that it should be or the school system's just not the way or the government's just not the way or this neighborhood or this city is just not the way that it should be. We were made for something more than this. You ever feel that at a deep level? Okay, that is the thirst, the hunger for shalom that God has put in every human heart. 
here's my simple definition for it. Shalom is physical, spiritual, emotional, and social harmony everywhere. That's what shalom looks like. We've never seen it, but we've tasted it. We've tasted this. And oh, it's, it, it's so good. Now, these four are all tied together, by the way, physical, spiritual, emotional, social, all of them. Because if one starts to unravel, it unravels the rest. You see, like if, a, if a child is, is hungry and needs food, that's a physical problem, but it will have spiritual, emotional, uh, emotional and social ramifications. You know what I mean? Uh, if there is a, an unjust law, that is a social problem, but it will have physical, spiritual, and emotional ramifications. You see, it's like God has built society in this tapestry, and if one thread starts to get pulled, it unravels the whole thing. So we have to have a broad perspective with this. Now, the key to bringing shalom to life, I believe, is another biblical word. It's a word that is central to the call of the people of God, and that is because it is a word that is central to the character of God himself. Uh, it's the word justice. Justice. If you want to establish shalom, then that looks like working for justice. Now, I want you to try this, you know, this week. Uh, when you go to lunch with your coworkers or whatever, I just want you to bring up the topic of justice and watch the temperature rise at the table. You know, because everybody's got opinion on justice these days, right? The left says that, that justice is, is mostly about re restoring rights and dignity to people who have, who have been historically disenfranchised and denied it. The right says that justice is mostly about law and order, you know, establishing good laws that are fair and enforcing them. So who's correct? Now, this is a rhetorical question, by the way. This is not your moment, okay? He's given me the opportunity. I'll seize the mic. No, it's okay. It's not your moment. No, but here's, here's the answer. The Bible's right. That's who's right. People on the right are like, no, it's in the name. We're right because we're on the, no, no. It's the Bible. The Bible's right. You see, the Bible has a much more nuanced view of things than what we tend to diminish it to in public conversation. Now, you see, the Bible, for Bible nerds in the room, uh, in the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words used for our English word justice. Uh, the Hebrew word mishpat and the Hebrew word sedakah. And we'll, we'll talk about the latter in, in future weeks to come, but I wanna focus on mishpat for a second. Because it's another incredibly popular and powerful word in the Old Testament. It's used over 200 times in the Old Testament. Maybe the most popular use is uh, Micah 6, 8. Everybody's heard this one read before, Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you? Three things. To act justly, that's mishpat. To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. One of the three things the Lord requires of you is this. What is it? Well, if we were to take mishpat and look at all of its uses and try to categorize it into some, I don't know, main definitions, I think it falls into two categories. When mishpat is used, one, it's often used to mean something like law and order. Leviticus 24, 22, it says, you shall have one law, that's, the, that's mishpat, you shall have one law for the alien and for the citizen, for I am the Lord 
your God. Literally, the English translating committee took this word, translated it over to the words one law because they thought it's important for you to know that justice means establishing and enforcing fair law. So if it means anything, then mishpat absolutely includes fairness and justice and law. The second use means something like, um, like equal rights and dignity though. <laughs> rights and dignity. Zechariah 7, 9, give me an example. Uh, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, dispense true justice, there's mishpat, and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor. Now it's fascinating. The word mishpat is applied all throughout scripture to all sorts of different groups, but by far the most popular group that it's applied to is this four right here, this quartet of the vulnerable, if you will. The widow, the orphan, the poor, and the immigrant. They need justice, the Bible says. Why? Because these were the people in that society that were often denied the dignity that they already had as image bearers of the most high God. So you see how this works? Summary slide for you here, okay? Justice, mishpat, I believe, is the key to shalom. We have to be a people of justice. Justice means, to put it really simple, giving people what they deserve, according to God. And that includes both law and order, but also rights and dignity. We should give criminals the just and fair consequences that they deserve in order to protect the weak, in order to protect the innocent, in order to protect the vulnerable, and in order to ensure restoration for the perpetrator. But justice is also giving the oppressed the dignity that they deserve as those who bear God's image. Okay, now this Bible study's over. Okay, some of you are like, oh, some of you are like, praise. Okay, elbow, elbow your husband, wake him up. Because um, I want to apply this now. Can, can, throw up the previous slide. Throw up the summary slide one more time. All right, it's not quite over. So one more time. All right, I want you to know, this is the foundation. This theology, and this is, by the way, just an, like the iceberg tip of the theology. But this theology is the foundation of why we believe it is so important for us to be the Love the Ville Church. You've got to understand, a lot of people think that we're concerned for justice because, like, some sort of political motivation or goal. We're not. It's the Bible. It's Jesus. It's the heart of our God. He was concerned with this. He thought it was a central strategy, so it is for us. Now, uh, let me apply this. Uh, we do not have shalom in our city, do we? Our city reeks so often of injustice in homes and in neighborhoods, in schools and in the government, in the East End and the West End and the South End. We need more justice here. So that's why we must be a Love the Ville Church. That's why we are committed to being the Love the Ville Church. For those of you who are new here, Love the Ville may be new language uh, for you. You heard, probably hear us talk about it a lot, but um, Love the Ville's kind of just become like a tagline, a, a mantra for this church. And it's been that way for about seven years now. Love the Ville actually started um, in May, 2014. 
I was 28 years old at the time, um, looked exactly the same. I'm serious. You can look at pictures of me from when I was six. It's just it's stupid. Um, so I uh, had no kids. But I remember that, that, that May Sunday, I preached a sermon called Just, Just Another Church. The challenge to our church was to not be just another church. And then we went out um, a couple weeks later for our first Blitz Day. It was called the hashtag, leave that picture up right there. The, the hashtag love 40206. The Clifton Blitz. We even had a little website there for it. Love the Ville did not exist at this point. By the way, who has one of those red t-shirts? Show of hands in the room. Hold, hold them up for a second because these are the OGs of Love the Ville right here. <laughs> them the OGs, okay? Get to know them. They've seen some stuff. Now, the day was really cool. It was a beautiful day. Got a lot of work done, served the Clifton community in amazing ways. Uh, it went great. But that day ignited something even greater in the heart of this church that to this day has not been quenched. Like, to be honest, on the first Blitz Day, our vision was small. We did not know that this Blitz Day would turn into like an eight-year thing. We saw it as a one-time event that would excite our church and help our people be more compassionate and kind. But we did not see it becoming our heartbeat at this point. We certainly didn't see this, okay? We didn't see how God would turn this day into a movement that would transform our community in thousands of lives. We didn't see ourselves hiring an entire staff team of all-stars at that point. We didn't have outreach staff then, like Tamara, Leslie, Rose, Madison, and Chris, who now compose our outreach team. We didn't see this Blitz Day turning into 11 intimate partner schools, over 30 plus volunteer liaisons who serve in them weekly. We didn't see it, it appreciating thousands of teachers or elevating tens of thousands of families in our community. We just didn't see it. We didn't see West Louisville and our partnerships that we would develop there with the beautiful people from this community, like Miss Tammy. We're just talking with her this week, just praying for her this week. I remember when we met Miss Tammy three years ago, uh, she had a dream to have a, uh, a good grocery store in the Parkland community in West Louisville. Grocery store, that's not that big of a deal. What is it? Well, it's, Parkland's a food desert. Rephrase, Parkland was a food desert until Miss Tammy came along. Now we got the amazing opportunity three years ago to partner with them, we, uh, with her. We helped remove some obstacles. And uh, what ended up happening was she, she built up a, a healthy uh, grocery store and she became one of the leaders that people look to in that community. So much so that this past week, she just won the Metro Council seat out there. And she, she would tell you that Jesus is why, and if she was on this stage today, which we're gonna have to get her, here soon, uh, she would thank this church for the way that you empowered her and enable her gifts. We didn't see that, we didn't see her. We didn't see Portland Elementary School or Portland Promise Center or Hand in Hand Ministries or the Jesus loving women at the Louisville Affordable Housing Trust Fund. Uh, we didn't see the sister churches that we would unite with from the East End and the South End and the West End. We didn't see the tornadoes that would hit Western Kentucky, the floods that would hit Eastern Kentucky, and our church being one of the leading churches that other churches look to for what an appropriate disaster response 
looked like. Uh, We didn't see the thousands of refugees settled or the homeless women and children housed or the prisoners loved or the babies born or the hungry neighbors fed. I don't know if you remember this, hashtag two cheeks, two weeks. But one year, we literally literally gave away 300,000 meals to hungry kids in the school system. We didn't see the 30 plus organic ministries and nonprofits that would be launched by our Northeast stakeholders. We didn't see that some of you would feel called to join boards or even run for office and win. We didn't see the hundreds of thousands of hours of volunteer work that would be invested. We didn't see the families that would foster local children or sell their homes and move into impoverished communities or leave their jobs in order to work for a nonprofit. Understand, we have been on a ride the last seven years. Like we, we've raised $7 million for the poor the lost and the least. We built a hospital in Asia. We built a college ministry down in UofL. We built multiple food pantries in local schools. We built clean water wells around the world. We built a resource center for the homeless in Oldham County. We put eight people into homes this year for the first time in their lives. People who only imagined that they could have homes. One was a janitor, one was a bus driver. Three of them were teachers in our partner schools. And don't get it twisted, don't get it twisted. Jesus, why? Jesus, why? He's the one who put this passion in our heart. He's the one who put these resources in our hand. He's the one who put the breath in our lungs that we get to serve with. To him be all the glory. My point in listing all this off to you is just that we didn't see it. We didn't see it in 2014, but, but God did. Uh, now, that being said, uh, throughout this sermon series, I'm gonna introduce you to some of the beautiful people that serve in our, our partner organizations, some of the beautiful people that they serve. So right now, um, I'm gonna invite, I don't even know where Daryl is. Daryl, you in here? Did you make it back? There he is, I'm gonna invite, there he is, okay. I'm gonna invite Daryl and Keith to come on up. We guys give Daryl and Keith a round of applause to come up here. I'll hand this off to Daryl here first. Uh, Daryl is the executive director of Prisoner's Hope, one of our uh, partners that we love. Daryl, just real quick, give everybody the, you know, the elevator pitch of what you know, Prisoner's Hope does. Hi, guys. So should be on. Um, the Prisoner's Hope partners with men and women on their way to prison, in prison, coming out of prison. We start our work two years prior to their release, those who are incarcerated, so we get a good runway uh, time discipling those people. We also work with the families left behind in the throes of crisis, help navigate there, and we provide professional counseling for the children of the mentees as well. It's amazing. It's amazing comprehensive work. This, this year alone, they have helped 30 men and women reintegrate back into the community by helping them find housing, food, jobs, all at job readiness, all of those things. And uh, what Daryl and his team would tell you is that maybe the most important thing to helping people reintegrate and not end up back in jail is healthy community. Uh, they need to find a healthy church and they need a mentor which is one of the things that Prisoner Hope does. Some of y'all are mentors in Prisoner's Hope and we are so thankful for that. Now, what I love about Daryl is that he walks the talk. He, uh, he's, he's a mentor and one of his mentees is my man, Keith here, who I've enjoyed getting to know this morning. We're thankful that Keith is here. Uh, Keith's story is a tough one. Uh, Keith ended up in prison because uh, someone lied about him and his family. Uh, but even though those circumstances were difficult for Keith, uh, he, I think he'd tell you today that God is at work in prison. God is at work in prison because in the prison is where he met Daryl. 
and they started a discipleship relationship. And, and he's out now, but they still have this mentor-mentee relationship that's, that's really beautiful. Shared a little bit about it uh, this week in a letter they, they wrote me. But I wanted to invite Keith here today, um, one, to tell him, and I've told you this every service, I'll tell you this again, if, if Jesus calls you brother, then that means you are a brother, right? So we got your back. If you ever need anything, you've got Prisoner's Hope, you've got Northeast Christian Church supporting you. Um, but I also, we're people of prayer. And so I just wanted to invite uh, Keith on stage today. We could just pray for him. Pretty simple. So um, Keith, would you mind just sharing, you know, anything that you'd like prayer over today? One thing I would like to have prayer for, I uh, have a strong passion to help people any way I can, how I can, where I can. And so I just ask you to pray that the Lord will open doors to give me the opportunity to do that. Thanks, Keith. And uh, Keith is modest. Um, he's not gonna ask for personal prayer requests this morning, but he shared this with me. Um, me and Daryl know this is on his heart. Um, not only does, does he want opportunities to help others, but Keith is dealing with some medical issues right now. Um, doctors found a tumor in the back of his brain uh, that is hindering his ability to see. It's made half of his vision foggy, and I know that's heavy on his heart, and so um, he asked that we would pray for him about that as well. So. Uh, can we do that? And uh, here's John. I was trying to look for one of our elders. John, come up here. John, come up here. I invite John up. He's one of our elders. Um, I ask John to just uh, to pray over over Keith. I've already prayed over him twice. You know, he's gotten all the the Jesus power out of my prayers. He's gonna get. Let's get a real prayer warrior up here. John, would you mind just pray for for our brother Keith? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we first lift up praise to you, Lord. You're a great, holy, and awesome God. Yes, God. Father, right now, we, uh, we lift up Keith to you, Father. Uh, first for praise, Lord, for uh, uh, just his, uh, his testimony, mm -hmm. uh, his, uh, his, um, his appreciation, Lord, for uh, coming to know you. And Father, I pray for, uh, pray for him in his uh, drawing closer to you. Lord, also lift him up in his body right now with this... Uh, this tumor. Mm -hmm. uh, Father, I pray for those who are uh, ministering to, to Keith right now, the doctors and nurses, others who would be, he'd be in counsel with and, and what to do and, and how to approach this. I pray first for, Lord, uh, you are the great healer. So I pray you reach down and touch his body and just heal him completely. Yes, God. And uh, pray you go before him in his uh, desire to, uh, to serve others. <laughs> Open doors, Lord. Uh, grant him the desires of his heart to serve them and in your name. Uh, confirm for him, Lord, and, and just give him great uh, confirmation that uh, each step he takes is in obedience to you and following your leading. Lord, we um, just thank you for uh, Prison Hope. Uh, thank you for the, um, uh, just the, the service that that uh, ministry provides, the, the hope that it brings. And uh, Lord, I pray you, uh, you bless it in a mighty way. Lord God, we uh, lift up all these things in your son's name. Amen. 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 Thanks, John. Thanks, gentlemen. Would you put the mic right there on the, the stand? Would you guys give him a round of applause, too? Appreciate y'all. My brother, I got a little Love the Ville gift for you on behalf of the church. It's all Love the Ville swag, so it's just not, it's not anything I can. Thanks. All right. Thank you all. Thank you all. <laughs> Uh, one more time, just to reaffirm John's prayer and the prayers of the church. Um, all God's people said, 
Amen. We will continue to pray for Keith. Now, uh, over the next few weeks, uh, we're just going to do that a lot. Sermon stop, worship service stop, whatever. And we're going to invite some of our partners and some of the people that are impacting on stage because we want you to meet them. Um, We want you to see what this theology of shalom and justice looks like in real life and uh, just the beautiful people that we're getting to meet along the way. One of the best things about justice is the people that meet and how they change you. They change you. God does that. He changes you. So you need to get involved. But um, for the rest of our time today, just real briefly, I want to close by, by offering you what I would just call the, the three key beliefs that I think have brought us here. I've been reflecting a lot on the last years. What are the three things that Love the Ville energized or synergized around? What are the three things that, that we must renew our commitment to if we're going to have another great eight years? What are the three things that have got us to this point? What are the three things we would ask people who are new here to embrace? These are the three, and uh, I'll just put them up for your consideration if you're new to our community. Uh, first, at Northeast, what's got us to that, this point, okay? This is very important. At Northeast, we feel like we have been uniquely called by God to fund that's right, I said fund. Don't worry, we put the fun in funding here at Northeast, as you can see, but fund a movement for the poor and the marginalized. Justice means money. And so we don't mind asking, uh, asking for it. Now, seriously, if you don't like being asked to give beyond your comfort zone to God's work, this ain't your place. Because we go hard in the paint and we ask every year. And we ask for big. We want to be the most generous church on earth. You know? And the fact is that generosity isn't as much about what you give as it is about what you keep. Hear that now. Hold on to your purse, honey. He's talking about... No, but it is. It is. It's about what you... So... Um, Jesus in Luke chapter 21 tells this interesting story you're probably familiar with. He and his disciples are in the temple and all the rich folks come rolling up. They're shaking their money bags, dropping big checks in the offering plate. And Jesus is unimpressed. You know, like he's just, not, but, but then all of a sudden, do you remember this widow walks up with a dollar, you know, she tosses it in the plate. Nobody's paying her any attention except all of a sudden Jesus is God in the flesh. And he's like, did you see that? Did you see that? He says to his disciples, that's generosity. And the reason why is because she gave everything. You see, embedded in this is the real definition of generosity, at least in the heart and the mind of Jesus. It's not what you put in, it's what you keep for yourself after. What should challenge every single one of us, right? Including me. In America, we have to start seeing wealth as one of the spiritual gifts of our church. We have to, because it is. We're born into the wealthiest nation maybe in history. You could have been born somewhere else, and you would have had different gifts. You could have been born in the you know, Middle Ages and suffered from the bubonic plague, right? But you're here. This is where you were born. Uh, and, and wealth is a luxury that we get to enjoy. Look around the room right now. Think this is what church buildings look like around the world? This is perhaps the number one spiritual gift, by the way, for the American church, wealth. 
Uh, okay, we're not the best at everything, America. Okay, we got to get over our ego problem. USA, USA. We are not the, wait for the World Cup in a couple weeks. You'll see. We ain't the best at everything. I'm just saying. This is one thing we are gifted with though. Romans 12, six, it is a gift. It is a gift. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. Tell me about some of these gifts, Paul. Well, if God's given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift's serving, serve. If your teacher, teach. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is, what's that word there? A little louder for those in the back. Yeah, it's giving. I'll say it loud. Giving. If it's giving, give generously, he says. If God has given you leadership ability, take that seriously. If uh, your gift's showing kindness to others, do it gladly. So here's the point. Okay? It's a gift. For what it's worth, you don't have to be wealthy in order to have the gift of generosity. I've seen many poor folk who are as generous as they can be, just like the widow in Jesus' story. But I believe that if you are wealthy, then you've been given the gift of generosity. In fact, if you're wealthy and you're not exercising the gift of generosity, you're exercising the vice of greed. Because our wealth is a gift. It's all God's anyways. Praise him for it. So look, we're all in here. The expectation is we give until it hurts. You and God can figure out what that looks like for you. But I'm gonna go and tell you, this is where the joy of generosity is found, where it hurts. Now, quick little vision bit here. Um, you know what I would love to see? I would love to eventually see us to be the sort of church that pushes out as, as much money outside of our walls as we spend inside of our walls. I want you to check this little graphic out, okay? It uh, shows you the numbers here. We basically have two big funds that we invest in now as a church, we give to as church, now that we've retired our debt, which yet yeah, we retired our debt a year ago. Praise God for that. Um, as you can see, the two, the two funds are the Love the Ville Fund, which is kind of what goes out in the general fund, which is, which is what comes in. In 2015, that was the first year we ever started collecting the Love the Ville offering. Some of you were here for that. Some of you, some of you gave that. And when we collected a quarter million dollars that year, we thought we were something. We're like $230,000. God's generosity knows no bounds. And isn't that number cute? You know, as you fast forward and look at God's amazing grace and the generosity of this group last year, y'all are amazing. A little bit crazy, to be honest, but I love it. Now, I want you to notice about year 2017 to 2018, the general fund starts to level out. And where we continue to grow in income is our Love the Ville Outreach Fund. And uh, I'm okay with that. I am. As long as the general fund doesn't bleed out, all right? What I would love to see is I would love to see six, seven million in one column and six, seven million in the other column. We can't rob Peter to pay Paul. We got thousands of people in the family that we need to take care of. That's part of being a Love the Ville Church, but we've got even more outside of the family. Uh, so that's the sort of radical generosity I would love to see us grow into. Our goal this year is to be six million in the general fund, two million in Love the Ville Outreach. That would be a third or a third of the way there. God knows where we'll be in 10 years. Second key, second key. 
One, we will fund a movement for the poor and marginalized. Two, we will establish a public reputation as the Love the Ville Church. You hear this language a lot. We wanna earn for ourselves this reputation. This is, this is what we want our public facing reputation to be those outside of our church. And this is because this is how God works. What distinguishes the Christian God from the other gods in the ancient world is that our God not only loves the poor and the marginalized, he identifies with them. Psalm 146, seven, one example for you. says, God gives justly to the oppressed, or excuse me, uh, justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and the widows, but he frustrates the plans of the wicked. Now this one passage is a sample of hundreds just like it in the Bible, hundreds. Where God literally introduces himself as the God of the poor and the marginalized. In virtually all ancient cultures, the gods identified with the elites, they identified with the kings, they identified with the rich, but not Yahweh. We see in the Hebrew scriptures, he takes his stand at the bottom and Jesus follows suit. Matthew 25, 37, iconic words from Jesus. On judgment day, Jesus says, then the righteous will reply, Lord, Lord, Jesus is the Lord, by the way. When did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for me. Or in other words, Jesus says here, like the logic is here, you wanna love me? Wanna love Jesus? Love the poor. Wanna please Jesus? Please the poor. Because he is so closely identified with them that what you do unto them, you do unto him. You see how this works? Now, for the record, I wanna be clear, there is more to being a Christian than just doing justice. But this is what we want our outward face to be. We just did two weeks on evangelism, so vital. But here's what the, here's what the world thinks, okay? When the world sees us doing evangelism, they just see us proselytizing. They see it as self-advancement. They're trying to build their tribe, right? But when we pour out our love to the poor, you know what the world gets a glimpse of then? The world gets a glimpse of the unconditional love, the free grace, and the amazing beauty of our God. It's honestly one of the most evangelistic things that we can do. It creates the opportunity to move from justice to evangelism in that moment. So this was God's calling card, this is ours as well. The world has a lot of prejudices about Christians right now. When we love the poor extravagantly, it blows those prejudices away. Third, we fund it. We want to earn for ourselves a reputation of it. Third, last. Thing that has made this work, and this is, this is the core, y'all. Thing that has made this work is that we believe we have the best resources to do justice in Christ. The very best. Do you believe that as a Christian? Justice is a buzzword right now. Super cool thing to tweet about. But having been in the justice game for a minute um, with Love the Ville, I found that there's basically three kinds of people who do justice. Uh, one, there's people who don't. People who don't care about it, despite how much of a buzzword it is. That's fine. Um, 
You know, they kind of worry about themselves, poor them, you know, is their mind. they vote for policies that benefit themselves. They insulate themselves from the poor. We're gonna move to this neighborhood. We're only gonna shop here. We're only gonna go here so those people don't have to be in our lives, right? They buffer them out. And then they self-justify saying things, you know, like, well, the reason why they're poor, the reason why they're so hard on it, you know, is because they're lazy, because they're immoral, because they don't work hard, which just shows you how little you know about the poor anyways. Clearly aren't, aren't hanging out with them. So one, there's people who don't care about it. Two, there's people who pretend to care about it. Thin justice is what I would call it. And these are the folks that are really loud on Instagram. If somebody's really loud about justice on Instagram, I'm not saying this is always true, but it is a great indicator that their justice is thin because they probably live in the burbs. They probably give about 1% and they don't volunteer that often, but when they do, it's going on the gram. Believe that. They go to the gala once or, you know, every year or two. Only problem is that the tuxedo and the dress they wore to it is more than they donated. Like that's, that's how it works. It's a thin sense of justice. They can't name one refugee in this city. Can't tell you one person they've put a roof over their heads. I can't tell you can't tell you one homeless woman or one hungry kid that they fed. Their passion for justice doesn't actually lead to any real self-denial or delayed gratification. So it's actually not real passion for justice. It's just virtue signaling, right? Third group, people who don't care, people who pretend to care. Third, there are some people who really do care for the poor and they're not Christians, but they really do care. They're doing it without a heart for Jesus. Um, and if that's you, here would just be my loving warning to you. Be careful. Because doing justice work without Jesus can shrivel your soul and set your emotional health on fire so quickly. What I have noticed is that um, it doesn't matter what your justice issue is. The people who really care can have this tendency to become kind of condemning or self-righteous or harsh kind of like I sounded a few seconds ago, actually. I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me. Um, <clears throat> they feel like, like I'm on the side of justice and why aren't you, right? And so what ends up happening is their, their, their longing for justice ends up turning them in to the very thing they wanted to fight against in the beginning, a, a person who hates. Like if you hate the haters, what does that make you, right? So look, young people especially, look, um, you're very conscious of injustice. I love that about you. But having been in the justice game for, for a minute or two, this would be my advice. Don't do it without Jesus because the spiritual warfare and the demonic forces that you're gonna come up against in the systems of injustice, they are real. They will suck your soul, chew it out, turn you bitter, hateful, and cynical before you can blink. So there's the people who don't care, the people who pretend to care, the people who do care, but then there's a fourth group, the Christians. And as Christians, we believe we have the spiritual resources to go a fourth way. We can't not care, because look at our God. It can't be a thin sense of justice, because look at James chapter two. That's what the Bible calls dead faith. 
We can't get vindictive when it comes to our pursuit of justice because we serve a Jesus who died literally being lynched and forgiving his enemies at the same time. And we serve a Jesus that says, don't worry, vengeance is mine someday, just be patient. So instead, as Christians, when we pursue justice, we do it with the utmost humility, remembering the justice that we've been spared of in the cosmic courtroom of God. There is this remarkable story Jesus tells uh, in, in Luke's gospel. A Jewish lawyer comes up to him and says, Jesus, you care a whole lot about this love, the neighbor, love neighbor command. Um, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story where he's like, well, once there was this Jewish guy who was beat to the end of his life on the road by bandits and a priest walked by and did nothing. A Levite walked by and did absolutely nothing. But then a Samaritan, a who? A dirty, rotten, scum of the earth Samaritan, which is what they thought they were back then. He came and he helped this Jewish guy out, nursed him back to health at his own personal expense. Scandalous story. It became legendary. It ended up in the Bible. It's a story called the Good Samaritan, which was an oxymoron back then. Now, what made this story so powerful and potent, though, was where Jesus put the Jew in the story. The Jew wasn't the hero. The Jew was the victim in need of mercy. Could you imagine if he'd have told it differently to this Jewish lawyer? If it was the Samaritan beat up and the Jew came in for the rescue? You know how the lawyer would have responded? The lawyer would have said, we would never do that for Samaritan swine. Or the lawyer would have said, of course we do that. You know, we're the Jews. They would never do that for us. But that's not what Jesus wanted. His audience was a Jewish audience, so he wanted them to envision themselves as the one who needed mercy in that moment. Tim Keller wrote it like this. He said, Jesus was saying something like, what if your only hope was to get ministry from someone who not only didn't owe you a thing, but actually owed you the opposite? What if your only hope was to get free grace from someone who had every justification based on your relationship to trample you? You see where he's going with this? This is exactly where we find ourselves in the cosmic courtroom. We are guilty of sin. We deserve what's come to us, destruction, death, and darkness. But Jesus is the great Samaritan. At his own expense, he gives everything so we might be well. That, my friends, is the reason why we as Christians are uniquely empowered to be a people of justice, of shalom. Because of when you believe that you have been saved by God who owes you the opposite, you now have the power to go out in the world looking to help absolutely anyone no matter how much they deserve it or how much it costs you. So look, this is who we are. We are the Love the Ville Church. We unleash Jesus' love every day, everybody, everywhere. We've been called by God to fund a movement for the poor and the marginalized. We wanna earn for ourselves a reputation as the Love the Ville Church, and we do it because Jesus first did it unto us. I would welcome all of you OGs in the room to renew your commitment to that because it's not going anywhere. And for all you newbies, come join the movement. We think God's gonna do something special.